And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday. The phone number if you want to be part of the program, Beachwood 45789. Ask for Marvin or Karen, depending on when you call. We are broadcasting live on our YouTube and Facebook accounts, so the chat is open, the comments are there. If you're not here live, you can still leave a comment or you can send us an email, sci-fi for me, uh, 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 live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. I've only had a couple of cups of coffee yet. I'm getting there. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Jason Hunt here. I am the editor at Sci-Fi for Me. 32 years in the media. <clears throat> Not that that counts for much. We do have a bunch of podcast players where you can find this show in audio format, and I am looking for feedback from those of you who do that uh, to see if uh, if people are listening uh, or if the preference is to catch us in video, uh, which is fine either way. A couple of programming notes. Tomorrow we should have a new episode of Tardis Sauce with our discussion of all things Doctor Who. I think they're going to be looking at the New Year's special. And then tomorrow night, a brand new Ranker Pit talking about the last episode of The Mandalorian. And, of course, we'll have a wrap-up of the week's headlines Saturday morning on Good Morning, Good morning Multiverse. And then Monday night... We hit a milestone. The H2O podcast has its 250th episode. And it's an anniversary. It's a big it's a big uh, it's a big show for us. We have no idea what we're going to talk about yet, but that's pretty typical. I do kind of have an idea of what we're going to talk about today. Because uh, Melinda Snodgrass is here to talk about her new book. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thanks for being here. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it, Jason. Well, we're glad you were able to make it. Um, Okay, so some people will know your name from Star Trek, from Wild Cards, but you have a whole other series of stories that you've been working on, and let's let's start with those because as long as I have been a fan of genre, there are things that skate under my radar. There are a lot of different things that I come in and I was like, oh, I haven't heard of this. I mean, you've got this entire series of of books, and uh, wait a minute, I haven't heard of these. I mean, I've heard of you. I've read, t- you know, I've read your Star Trek stuff. We've seen The Measure of a Man on Next Generation, so it's not, you know, who you're not coming coming out of the blue. But I didn't know about these books, and I'm interested in these. So, what can you tell me? This this Imperial series is the is the one that you've got a new one coming out, right? Yes. Um, there, it's a big space opera series. Um, I became really intrigued. I love space opera. Um, I've always preferred science fiction to fantasy. Nothing against fantasy, but I want a starship, you know, and I want to go visit other planets. Um, and I'd always wanted to write a space opera. 
but because of my background, I'm a reformed lawyer um, and, you know, have managed a business and, you know, done a lot of other things. I felt like I wanted to look at sort of societies in crisis and economics and uh, politics in addition to big space battles. So, you know, that's what I set up as a way to explore. And right now there are three books out and available, um, books one, two, and three, um, The High Ground in Evil Times and The Hidden World. And the fourth book, which has never been previously published called The Currency of War, will be out um, early next year. In fact, I just got to see some of the fabulous cover art by my artist, Elizabeth Leggett, who is just extraordinary, uh, Hugo winner, wonderful, wonderful artist. Um, but that's what I've been doing. I've been playing with that. Book five is also completed. Um, that comes from sort of my Hollywood and legal background. I never write anything until I know how it ends, uh, whether it's a book or a series. Sure. So when I sat down to come up with this series, I knew it was going to be five books. I knew how it was going to end. And um, and the fun that I had with it, and I'd actually discussed this with, with my, my buddy George Martin, is that book one, I, my two characters, my two main characters start when they're 18. And when we end book five, they're in their late 50s. Um, because I like to see how people grow and change and how life experiences affect them um, and to acknowledge the passage of time. I mean, it's kind of the one thing that drives me crazy with comics is that people seem sort of frozen in amber. They never <laughs> seem to age. They never seem to change. Right. Um, and I like to explore that. So, so I did something <clears throat> that I think was a little bit different in that I cover a, a lifetime of these characters. So that's... That's sort of the big science fiction project that I have. And the other books that are currently available are an urban fantasy, um, but again, a quirky urban fantasy because, um, because of me, I guess. But um, this is about a young woman lawyer who works in a vampire law firm in Manhattan. Um, and I wanted to explore how, how society would change if we actually had these sort of mythical figure creatures living among us. So I have vampires and werewolves and elves, oh my, um, in the universe, living in our world, but, you know, affecting our world, again, on the political, entertainment and economic areas. So, you know, that's, that's what I've been playing with. Um, and I have a whole other series, but that we'll talk about that when I can get back to it because right now I'm pretty busy. How much of a challenge is it in the world building? I mean, you have you have the background in in Hollywood and legal matters, like you said, you were a lawyer at one point. How much of the world building is a challenge for you in terms of, especially if you're getting into politics, the the politics uh, that you yourself have versus the politics internal to the various different characters of the story? Is it hard to keep those separate or is it fairly easy for you? Well, I, I think I try to really put myself in the characters and in the society I've built. Um, and, and I, you know, have to be honest, the society I created for Imperials is not terribly pleasant. Um, it's a sort of, you know, human human superiority uh, governs. I mean, the whole idea for it came because I had this weird image in my head of this like nine foot tall ant-like creature with mandibles and claws and, you know, just utterly terrifying alien cowering in terror in front of this little small human with a rifle. And 
the question I sort of asked myself was, what if we're the invading alien, the evil invading aliens? You know, what if we get faster than light speed drive, go out there and promptly, you know, kick the bejesus out of anybody we meet? And so I created a society that's grown up out of that that conceit of, you know, we're horrified, terrified to find we are not, in fact, alone. Um, and so I had to, you know, put aside my feelings and try to just embrace that. And and of course, I want to see that society overthrown and to change. And that was part of also having the characters grow and change in their attitudes toward their own society. And, you know, I think that's what people do or should do, you know, in their lives is look at the world and say, am I really happy with this or could it be better? Um, and so I, I think that's what fiction does for us, whether it's in television movies or in books, we give people a safe place to explore uncomfortable questions. Well, and I think science fiction especially gives us that that ability to to get a little introspective and self-reflective a little bit more because you can put it in other times, other planets, other societies, different kind of, of environments and settings. So it can be uh, an examination of us, but you're filtering it through you know, whatever, whatever alien extraterrestrial pastiche you want to put on it. I mean, that's certainly been the case for Star Trek going all the way back to the beginning. Is... Is... <coughs> Not quite sure how to ask this question because it it has the potential of opening up uh, uh, some PTSD for some people. The whole the whole kerfuffle around the Hugo Awards and politics versus story and message fiction versus you know entertaining fiction. Is there something to the argument that? Yes, we should have we it's okay to have those stories that make us think about things that bring up topics that we talk about that we think about, you know, it introduces new ideas. But at the same time, do we do are we best served by those stories that hit us over the head with it? it, it, it where do you strike the balance between the rip-roaring entertaining yarn and the sermon on the mount that hits people over the head and says, "Okay, where, where, where does, where did you fall in the middle of that and and come out the other side still okay?" Well, I think really this comes down to the craft and the art of writing. I mean, honestly, um, even <clears throat> even the most big dumb fun entertainment. And look, I I loved Pacific Rim and and my secret vice are the Fast and the Furious movies. Okay, because <laughs> you know, I love cars and fast cars going very fast. Yes, um, I don't expect to, <clears throat> you know, get deep thoughtful analysis in those. However, a good writer, I think, always has a theme that they're exploring, and you know, I talk about theme and plot, and they're two completely different things. Right, and. A lot of fun books are very plot driven, are, are, are fun movies. But I think if if the if the film is going to have or the book is going to have any kind of impact, you need to have an underlying theme and the writer should know that. And I think there's a way to deliver thoughtful messages without beating someone over the head. And I think that comes down to craft, which is why I always recommend that people have beta readers or be in a writer's group. 
Um, because that can be really helpful to have another set of eyes to go, you know, you're really riding your hobby horse here <laughs> and maybe you ought to kind of pull back on that. Right. Um, but I do think theme is, is so vitally important. I mean, the way I've put it in lectures that I've done at colleges um, when I'm teaching guest teaching or on panels is that <clears throat> plot is the stuff that happens and theme is why it matters. Sure. I can, I can see that. That's a good distinction to make. Yeah, you have to have both. And for me, theme comes first. Um, what do I want to say? What am I talking about that elucidates the human condition, that talks about the human heart in conflict with itself, um, which is, I believe, how Dashiell Hammett put it. Um, I hope it was Hammett. Um, and, you know, then I figure out what's the end of this story. And then I figure out the teaser and then I go to town outlining it. But sure. that's sort of my process of figuring out the story I'm going to tell. One thing that has struck me about uh, David Weber's Honorverse, for example, we talk about the politics of the various different characters. He's got various different points of view, different government entities, different structures and that. And one of the things that I talked about with him at one point was, you know, how this this kind of thing where his politics are over here and they're not necessary he's not necessarily wearing them on his sleeve when he's when he's writing these books and i know it's a real challenge to to walk that line um now safas Nob points out in the chat you know there's the difference between the self-examination stories and the propaganda stories and like you're talking about having beta readers having the other people but how how much how difficult is it to find those beta readers that are going to be honest with you and they're going to sit there and say this you need to dial it back you know because your beta readers are generally probably going to be people that you know people that you're friends people that are going to you know well I still want you to like me at the end of the day so I'm not <laughs> going to slap you upside the head yeah how how do you how do you find that mix of good quality constructive feedback versus just surrounding yourself with a bunch of yes men um always always an issue i mean the one thing i do is i i rely generally on other writers um people who do this work um and you know we when we had our writers group we had a fabulous writers group here in new mexico but between you know life and things other people were doing we've sort of fallen apart but you know, we had certain rules. I mean, obviously don't pick your mother, you know, because unless it's my mother who hated everything, I actually never read anything I wrote. You know, she thought it was weird. But, um, you know, generally you don't want to pick your mom who's going to tell you it's fabulous. You want to pick somebody who's a little bit better than you, preferably. Um, I usually try to find a writer who I respect, who I think is a better writer than I am. <clears throat> who, because I'm striving. I mean, the thing I love about being a writer that any of any other career I've done, is that you always try to get better. Um, every every sentence you write, every paragraph, every book, is uh, every screenplay is a new exploration of how can I improve. Um, and so I generally go to other writers and, and we have a sort of agreement that whatever is said is not a personal attack. This is, a, we are talking about the work. Right. We're not talking about you as a person. And you need to find that. And the other thing you have to find is people who aren't gonna settle scores with you and the way we usually approached it was to say, you always compliment first, tell people what they did right. And then you go, if this were my book, I would, I am uncomfortable. This is, 
this is bumping me and here is why. Right. And if it were my book, this is how I would address it. You don't tell the person how to fix it. You tell them what you would do, make a suggestion. I mean, the other thing about, I mean, when I was in Hollywood, I've always been an outliner, but I really learned how to do it on shows, working on shows when we break stories, is that some idea that gets thrown out can be ridiculous. And then you can go, yes, but if I tweak it just a little bit, this is going to really work out. Um, And so that was, you know, I think that's really helpful. So you want to offer constructive advice. I mean, just saying this doesn't work for me at all is not helpful. I mean, that's not that's not what you want to do. And I'm I'm actually searching for the the dumb stick (laughs) that we had on Star Trek. It's somewhere. Oh, here it is Um, on track. I had this magic wand thingy that was a gift from a friend. And um, (laughs) one day we were all in the room breaking a story and we were stuck and one of the writers said give me that dumb stick and he took it and he held it proudly and he made the dumbest suggestion you've ever heard (laughs) I mean just and we all went yeah wow that's really dumb but you realize that if we did and then we were off and we fixed the problem and so I brought the dumb stick back home after I had finished my stent on track and reasonable doubts and George and I have used it a lot in wild cards um and we have both the physical one and we have the metaphorical Mm -hmm. dumb stick um, that gives you permission to say something off the wall without feeling guilty about it. Right. Now, let let me ask you about Star Trek for a minute, because your episode, The Measure of a Man, is considered one of the best episodes of The Next Generation. And in terms of talking, when you're talking craft, there are a lot of people, some people, vocal people, who are looking at things, you know, as far as, like, say, the first season of Picard, for example, and they're comparing the two, and they're saying everything that was done in the first season of Picard, this ground has been trodden already, and Melinda Snodgrass did it with this episode and did it much better. And the criticisms of Picard in terms of the writing and the performances and the direction and that kind of thing, the structure and the plot, they're saying, we've already been here and, and here's the episode that you should watch for all of that. How do you feel when those comparisons are made? Is that a justifiable comparison? Because you are kind of doing the similar kind of thing in terms of, where do androids rate in the grand scheme of things? And your your episode just knocked it out of the park for a lot of people. And they look at Picard and they find it lacking, especially compared to that episode. Well, I'm 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 flattered. Um, and and look, I'll be honest. Um, I was surprised that the theme or the plot of Picard was sort of growing out of measure of a man. I didn't know. Um, it wasn't until some fans started texting me and emailing me and face, you know, getting together with me on Facebook and going, did you know Picard is basically based on measure? And I was like, really? Oh, how interesting. Um, I was surprised. Um, naturally, I, again, I was flattered. Um, I, I would have made different choices. Let me put it that way. I wish I could have been um, involved in that writer's room. Uh, there were things that I would like to have have seen explored and developed in slightly different ways. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's it was 
it was frustrating because, you know, I wanted to get in and tinker with the engine because I was like, but, 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 <laughs> you know, um, and, and so, yes, um, I, it was surprising to me. And again, it was, of course, flattering. It was an honor to have someone think that script was good enough that they were going to build a new show based off it. But, right. um, uh, and, and there was a lot about the show, a number of the performances were just tremendous you know um the look of the show was was you know fantastic um and we'll see what you know if they move forward if they do another series or another season we'll see where they go from here because well you know, i, I, I kind of think the big octopi are still aware of where we are now because sure. the message went you know i'm sort of like oh what are the big octopi showing? right it's just kind of this that's that's Chekhov's gun hanging there on the wall right yeah, I was sort of like, and I guess it's actually octopus. I think the plural, I, I like to say octopi, but I think the plural of octopus is actually octopus. So, <laughs> so so not to put you on the spot, because this this could very well feel like I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm not. There are a lot of people that are not happy with the current iteration of Star Trek. They turn around, they point at Alex Kurtzman and say, these people don't understand what makes Trek Trek. So let me ask you, having played in that world, having actually done canon Star Trek, not fan fiction, what to you makes Star Trek unique and distinguishes itself from everything else science fiction? What makes Star Trek different from all of the rest? What's that, what's that nugget that defines it? Okay, that is a that that is a deep question. I think it is for me growing up as a little girl on original track, um, and then I think it was the human striving to be better and to find the places in which we fall short as human beings and to make strides in that more perfect union or that more perfect galaxy in terms of equality, in terms of understanding, in terms of, I mean, in some ways, I, I, I don't know why Gene went to the utopia where there was no money and there was no want and everything comes out of the wall. Right. I don't understand that world. I don't think that world can ever honestly exist and I was more interested in it when there was a chance to say, how is there inequality? How do we address that? And I think that's always been the sort of beauty of Star Trek. Um, the, and and the, the embrace of diversity and the honoring of differences and yet knowing we're all one. Um, so, and, and I have to be honest, I, I um I only watched Picard because I was sort of when I found out they were going to use um, Maddox, Doctor Maddox, in it, Bruce Maddox. Um, I was sort of like, I created that character, and I want to see what they do with him. Um, and so I honestly, that's the only Star Trek I have watched since I left the show. Um, I've never watched, I, I, I know Ira did a brilliant job on Deep Space Nine. Um, Ira is brilliant. He was my mentor and I learned so much from him. 
but I've never seen Deep Space Nine or Voyager or Enterprise or any of the others. Um, really? You know, partly because, to be honest, um, uh, one of my friends that was one of the writers on Trek when I was there, um, he said Star Trek puts the S and the T in PTSD. Um, <laughs> it was not an easy writers. It was not an easy experience to work on that show. Um, there's a part of me that would desperately love to have the opportunity to get involved again. Um, there are things I have, a, I, you know, obviously the obvious Star Trek series nobody's ever done is Starfleet Academy. I mean, if you want to do the CW version of Star Trek, then I think they should. <laughs> there you go. That. Right. Um, but I, the, the one I, I would love to do, I mean, if somebody, if CBS came to me and said, here's, you know, here's $10 million. What is your idea for a new Trek series? Um, I would go, I want to do the rogues and the rascals. I want to do the people who are, who are like, oh no, it's Starfleet. Oh no, they're going to have the boot on our neck. We just want to make a buck. You know, I yeah. want to do the hairy muds. What is that story? What do those people look like who are sort of living in the cracks between all of this? And, um, and, and I, who, for whom the Federation feels oppressive um, and, you know, a little bit too constipated, if you will. They want to live a more, you know, a freer life, a freer spirits. Right. Who are those people? And, you know, the disgraced Starfleet officers who've joined up with a bunch of rogues. And, you know, I just think that would be kind of fun to see that part of the world. I'm sensing a little bit of a theme here with that kind of an idea there for Star Trek and your Imperials series here, where it, it doesn't really... And I don't know if this is you personally, if you've just kind of latched onto this idea as something worth exploring quite a bit. The the oppressive government regime idea is that uh, is that a recurring thought that comes to mind when you're coming up with new stories and and things to explore, or is that just just one I of many? It was one of many. I mean, I um, I'm a political junkie. I admit it, um, and so. Uh, you know, my, my father and uh, one of our New Mexico senators, their grand plan was that I would do law school and then I would go into politics and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, unfortunately, I ran away from that, but I'm still very interested. And, and, um, and also, you know, my specialty was constitutional law in law school. That's where I focused most of my attention. Um, and I think if, you know, if life had been there, I mean, I'm very grateful. I love the career I have. If I could do it again, I'd end up working for the ACLU um, or something like that, uh, because the idea of the expansion of rights and what the Constitution means. And so those are themes that I play with a lot. Um, and, and also daddy issues. <laughs> I, I'm all in my books. Um, the characters are always dealing with their daddy issues. So, um, you know. I, I hadn't actually realized it. You know, that's the thing. Harlan Ellison used to say, if you don't want people to see your soul, don't write. And right. I think he was, you know, absolutely true. Um, I hadn't even realized it till an interviewer from Canada said to me one time, you know, everything you write is about fathers and sons. And I was <laughs> like, really? Oh, my God, it is. <laughs> you know, yes, I am. I am doing that couple of comments in the chat uh if you're doing a cw star trek, mrs this is from mrs boss over here if you're doing a cw star trek it's got to have a musical episode um and the the idea that you've got about you know the the general population the citizenry having to live in that uh we do have a couple of suggestions for titles star trek the long haul truckers 
Star Trek Rikers <laughs> Island and uh, uh, Sci-Fi Snob says it sounds 100 times better than what we have now. So I, I think you're on to something. <laughs> CBS, if you're listening, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> well, now let me ask you about the about the the political junkie bit, because I look at your Twitter feed and I don't see a lot uh, with regard to promoting your work. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of election stuff there. There's horses. There's some animal videos. Uh, I had uh, the opportunity to talk to Anne Crispin when her Pirates of the Caribbean book came out. And this is where I first became aware. And this was a, a conscious thing that I started paying attention to. Uh, where she said, you know, back in the day, publishers had the big uh, heavy lifting for marketing a book, for promoting a new work. And over time, that has shifted. So it's now, uh, you know, sits on the author's shoulders to do a whole lot more of the promotions, whether you're doing interviews or you're doing signings or, or personal appearances or anything like that. And social media, of course, uh, being part of that mix, uh, you have your Facebook page for, the, you know, the author's page on Facebook, and you've got all these different accounts for whatnot. But it doesn't look like that you're using at least Twitter, uh, to promote your work so much. Are you, have you made the decision that social media is just your personal space and you're only going to promote your work in other, in other spaces like your website and, and places like that? I, it wasn't, I, I mean, part of it is I'm, I'm not great at self promotion. I'll be honest. Um, and it does drive me crazy when, People are always going, buy my book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in my book, there's this amazing love story. I mean, I I feel like um, Connie Willis is a very good friend of mine. And she and I have talked about this a lot. And I feel like I tell people when a new book is available. And I tell people when I'm doing an interview, like with you. Right. Um, but I feel like me constantly screaming at them Um did you know I have a book? Buy my book. I think it's more productive, at least my perception, and I may be completely wrong, but I feel like if I seem like an interesting person that people would enjoy talking with and hearing from, that they would then be more likely to maybe go over and check out my website and say, oh, look, maybe I'll buy her book because she's an interesting person. Um, and maybe I'm completely off base with that, but that's sort of been my approach to this. I would rather, I I would rather, be a human being first, and not not this sort of buy my book machine. Um, and you know, we'll see. I probably should occasionally remind people I do have a website, which I don't <laughs> blog enough on. My Facebook page is much more active, right. guys. Um, blogging feels like work i mean when i feel like i'm writing a blog i feel like i have to really say something you know right <laughs> and, uh, well now and, do you have a concern especially nowadays where everything is so heated emotions run high on both sides of every issue and everything becomes an issue at some point do you have any concern that you could say something type something post something that could alienate enough people that don't want to buy your book or is that is that just well this is just a natural consequence to you know let the chips fall where they may that is inevitable i mean i think that you know there are there are always going to be people who um are not 
in your camp, so to speak. Um, the one thing I always try to do is I try to never be um, offensive. I I open, I want debate um, as long as it's courteous. Sure. And as long as it's fact, um, I will block someone if they come with unverified remarks, whether it's about science or politics or law or whatever it is. Um, if you can back up your argument, I am happy to have the argument um, in, a, in a respectful way. Um, and I, I think we can't worry about that. I mean, people like different things. I mean, um, I, you know, that's the, <laughs> that's the reason there are, you know, not a bunch of different flavors of ice cream, you know, <laughs> yeah. not everybody wants vanilla or chocolate. Some people want tutti frutti. <laughs> and so there's always going to be enough people who like what you're doing. And I don't think you can please everyone all the time. And, and here's the thing I, I will always say to writer, uh, young aspiring writers, the only thing you have to offer, you, ha you can offer your story, but what you have to offer people is your authenticity. And readers are so quick to pick up. If, if you're just writing some, you know, if you're writing romances or you're writing urban fantasies or whatever it is, and you don't honestly love that, but you're doing it because, oh, they're big sellers and that's what the market wants. You're off, you, you will seem unauthentic and it will come across. It will come across the page. Um, it will come across your script. Um, you have to, it's that soul thing again. You've got to put yourself into the work. And so, yes, I mean, David, who I, I know not terribly well, but David and I, you know, uh, hung out together. We are coming from completely different political spectrums. Everybody's going to find, you know, our readers will find us and it'll be okay because yeah. you're not going to please everyone all the time. Um, and that's another important safety tip. I never read reviews um, and I urge people <laughs> not to do that. It's uh, it, it, that way lies madness. Um, all the bad reviews you're going, but there's nothing I can do about it because the book is published. <laughs> um, and then you feel terrible and writers are fragile little snowflakes and it hurts us. <laughs> so, and all the good reviews just give you a swelled head. Sure. So <laughs> my, my advice is just don't do that. Do the work, um, write the next book, write right. the next screenplay. Uh, Richard in the chat says, uh, I've always found Melinda to be an interesting person, perhaps in the same sense as the ancient Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I'll take being a curse. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, so, so let me ask you this then in terms of, uh, the authenticity part of it, when you're doing world building, you mentioned science and, and, and politics and whatnot, how much research do you do when you delve into topics that are maybe not necessarily your area of expertise? You've got maybe a little familiarity with it. You've read about it in the news or whatever, but you want to, you want to make sure that you get the right voice for a character, or you want to make sure that your information is right. How much, how much research is involved in your world building at this point? Um, I think I did more of it when I was, less confident. I mean, I do, do I, I obviously do do research and, you know, you don't want to make embarrassing mistakes. Um, on the other hand, there comes a point where you kind of have to say um, FTL is sort of fantasy. And right now my faster than light it's, and 
I have dear friends, uh, Ty, Ty Frank and, and Daniel Abraham. Um, and as they said, you know, when people ask them how the ships work in the expanse, they go, they're made of plot. <laughs> you know, and I'm all in favor of it's made of plot. Um, <clears throat> you know, I do want to to be as close as possible, but there are certain things that, like I made the the decision that I wasn't going to deal with AI in my Imperials. Um, and yes, that's a huge, so I sort of came up with an excuse for why they had not done a lot of development of, of, of AI and sentient software. Mm-hmm. Um, because I felt like that was a rabbit hole that, I didn't, I truly didn't know how to explore effectively. And I couldn't, didn't feel like I was going to do it well. And that wasn't what I wanted to talk about. I mean, that's the other thing. Writing is about making choices. You know, what's the story that I want to tell? Right. And so, you know, you make those choices, you pick the areas. I mean, I did a lot of research on, on like um, evolutionary biology, because I have this one alien race, the Hodgin, who sort of grew out of, of herbivores. You know what does that look like well they have heat cycles and they have you know what are the how does that affect as they developed even though they they had a sort of rudimentary star flight star yes um space flight they come out of a different development um and so you know i had fun exploring and talking with some physicians and reading about about biology for, for those things uh, Dawn in the chat says, I like the way Melinda talks about other stuff on her Facebook and Twitter pages. I like knowing more about the writer. It makes me want to read the books more. So, uh, so there is that. And, and, and it does, it does give you some good insights into the person behind the work. Um, but I know for some people, a lot of times the challenge is separating the art from the artist. And, you know, like you say, you can uh, fall down a rabbit hole pretty quick if you buy into your own press. So I think it's it's kind of a smart thing where we, we'll, we'll keep a healthy perspective on how people feel about what we're doing. But uh, have, have you come across from the beta readers or your editors or people that are, that are looking at your work thinking, Oh, this is great. This could be a, this could be a movie. You know, you not necessarily to, to talk about the swelled head syndrome, but you know, there are a lot of people that sit there and say, well, too many, too many people these days are writing the book or they're writing the comic book in order to audition for Netflix. Have you had conversations with people about, oh, this could make a good movie? This, I mean, because you have series of books. You know, you're working on the screenplay right now for Wild Cards, I understand. That's getting adapted. You have, you have that somewhere out there. Um, unless, unless that's not a thing now. I, 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 don't, I don't know how current my information is, but... So I, I, I can't say much about wild cards right now. Um, actually, what I'm doing um, screen wise is uh, I wrote a pilot based on on the Edge books on the Carolingian series, um, the ones that aren't available yet. <laughs> um, they were out and, and, you know, I got the rights back. And, um, you know, I'm pretty good at figuring out what could be a tv series or not i mean my manager was like really excited about imperials because he was like "Ooh, you know everybody wants space stuff and big space stuff and we should try to do imperials and i was like there are five alien races and even if we cut it down to three alien races that the humans conquered excuse me 
we are never going to be able <laughs> to, um, we're never going to be able to bring this to the screen, if, you know, in a, in, under any kind of budget. I mean, right. it's just not possible. But I looked at um, the Carolingian series, the Edge books, and said, in this era when people are dismissing science, damn it, excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. It's all right. Um, okay. That's one of my old law professors who I need to call back at some point. Hey, I see you're on, I see you're on TV right now. I, I want to talk. We need to talk. I know you're in your office. Yeah. I mean, I, eh, sorry about that. People. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, forgive the, the, the profanity, but I was like, friend, I can't talk right now. And now he's calling my cell phone. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was Netflix was calling. I? It's Netflix. Yeah, was, Pick up the phone. Yeah. Yes, it's Netflix. Um, I'm pretty good at figuring out what will make television and what won't. And the real key to that is you better sit down and go, okay, I've got a great pilot idea and this is really cool. What's episode four? Right. Because a lot of great ideas don't have, don't have staying power. They don't have um, a story that can be told um, long-term and you have to see that. And so when I was working on uh, this, this, television series that I've worked, written, written the pilot. I've done a Bible. We have a sizzle reel. We have a deck. I mean, we've got it all. We're ready to go. Um, you know, we're, but uh, it, it takes a lot of work to, and, and, and analyzing it. And I made profound changes. I mean, that's the other thing. A lot of novelists have a hard time um, moving and maybe I just don't have enough respect for my books, but I can take a hatchet to them without any problem at all. I'm like, okay, none of this works for television. So out, you know, it goes, oh, this character needs to be a woman instead of a man, change it. Um, and I've never had a problem doing that. And I know for some authors that's, that's quite difficult and that makes it hard for them to make the transition from prose to, to screenplays. Now, uh, we had uh, Lee Zlodoff on yesterday, and, and we were talking about his new MacGyver book. Right. And the idea, you know, he's he's been in this world of screenwriting all this time and has never done prose before. And he said he reached out to you uh, to help with all of this. And you completely slammed the door in his face and shut him down and said, I don't know if No, I'm kidding. Uh, he, you, you being as busy as you are, so that has me that has me into this next question of what all are you currently working on? You've got books that are coming out. So those essentially I would assume are done at this point because they're getting ready to to actually hit the shelves. What have you got in the works currently that maybe you can talk about or maybe you can't talk about? Um I am working simultaneously on book 4 of White Fang Law. Um, so I've got that one uh, going. And I am working on book four of the Carolingian um, uh, series, the Edge series, uh, that is called The Edge of Dawn. Um, I actually don't have a title. For, um, I, I suck at titles. I have a horrible time with titles. <laughs> and, um, so the White Fang Law book is untitled. And the other one is called The Edge of Infinity. Um, and I have written the first few chapters and the outline is up on the cork board, almost, almost completed. Um, but I've had some other things I've had to do, you know, I've had to do copy edits and, and things. And then we've been working on the screenplay. So, um, and now that my horses are home in New Mexico with me again, that's 
always minimum three hours out of every day. Um, a warning, if you come to my Facebook page or um, even on Twitter, uh, you're going to get some large neeps about horses and dressage. <laughs> <laughs> so be prepared for the horse, the dressage neeps um, that usually the, the, the guys in my group who follow me kind of go, okay, Melinda's off doing that thing again. No. <laughs> you know? and it's like she's speaking in an alien language, but okay. <laughs> and you also have uh, posted over on your, on your website that you're going to be appearing at the uh, Life, the Universe, and Everything Symposium. Yes. Um, it, they invited me to be the guest of honor. It's a virtual convention, so people can sign up and hang out. Um, I mean, I've been doing a lot of these. I did it for um, New Zealand for the World Con, um, and I was part of a one-day convention through NESFA um, reconvene that went really well. Um, I, I'm a little bit terrified because they want me to make a speech, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness, that sounds profound. I have to write a speech, <laughs> and uh, and I'm I'm fine with this sort of thing. I sort of like, can't we just sort of hang out and I'll just riff? <laughs> but they want a speech, so um, so I'm that's sort of in the back of my head. Is what am I going to talk about? You right, know, that, something that we've been uh, keeping track of. I think we started March fifteenth this past, you know, as at the, at the beginning of this year, uh, keeping track of the various different conventions and events that had changed their schedule in some way, shape, or form. Whether it's you know we're just going to cancel outright, or we're changing our date, or we're going virtual. Um, it seems to me that the virtual track is essentially here to stay for a lot of conventions. And, and yet, the challenge is how you make that work. Uh, because we looked at, you know, we watched Comic-Con at home from San Diego that didn't really go all that, all that well. Uh, and you would think the big one would have all of the resources to do everything online fairly well. Uh, DC Fandom uh, is, a, is a good example of people that really had everything together and, and, and had a home run with it. Do you, do you have involvement in uh, a lot of conventions? Do you talk to organizers a lot about uh, how you can make appearances still? What do you, what do you think conventions look like in 2021 are you going to stay at home and do it all virtually or are you ready to get back out and start making appearances i'm i'm ready to as soon as that vaccine as soon as i can you know get the shot and the vaccine is fairly widely distributed um i am eager to get back out um i mean thank god we have this um for those so this sense of isolation isn't so extreme but um, I just love getting to, you know, talk with people and hear from, you know, a young aspiring writer and, you know, offer them some advice because I had so much help when I was breaking in. Um, and I want to see the costumes. I mean, I want to see these. I, I can't sew on a button. OK, so these people who can create this, um, these extraordinary costumes. Um, I love comic conventions. I mean, I, I, I enjoy science fiction, don't get me wrong, but the comic conventions are just a feast, I mean, for the eyes um, and the senses. And I, you can't have that virtually. I mean, you don't have that experience of, of being in the moment. So um, 
And, and I love somebody coming up after a panel and saying, could we have a cup of coffee and can I talk to you? And, you know, you go sit down with the person. I mean, my favorite thing in the world to do at cons are coffee clashes. Um, you know, I just sit with a group of people and answer their questions and chat and get to know people. So I'm really, really hoping that a lot of the conventions can survive and come back because I know this has been a really hard two years. Um, and uh, I, I feel bad for the vendors and the organizers and yeah. the smoths and everybody else. This has been hard. You make the distinction between the science fiction convention and the comic book conventions. And I'm assuming by that you mean like the literary conventions like WorldCon and, and World yeah. Fantasy Con and that sort of thing. So let me let me let me dovetail off of that for a moment because when we were at Worldcon in 2016 here in Kansas City one of the things that we noticed was uh the demographic let's say uh of the, the attendance uh pretty much older generation uh I would say over majority of them over 40 over 50 there were a few younger people but not that many and one of the things that uh that Mr. Harvey and I talked about and made made note of the idea that it felt like the conventions that we used to go to back in the 80s you know when they were in the hotel ballroom and you had the vendors and, and that kind of the, the the smaller convention how well, let me let me back up and ask this question first. Are the literary conventions in danger of dying because the younger people are not going to those? They're going to the comic book conventions. They're going to the Hollywood conventions. You know, the stuff like San Diego Comic-Con where all the, the TV and the movie actors are going. You know, they're going to those. They're going to the cosplay conventions. They're going to the comic book conventions. Not so much the literary conventions. Is that is that going to be a problem soon? Do you think? I, I'm afraid it is. Um, <clears throat> and and I enjoy both. Um, but I I have been worried because it feels like our demographic at the literary conventions is older and very white. Um, and what I've loved about Comic-Con and the comic conventions that I've attended is the diversity and the energy. And I mean, you've got everybody from, you know, toddlers to grandmas, you know, um, dressed up as Wonder Woman. And I think it's fabulous. Um, and I don't know how we inject some of that energy back into our, our straight up science fiction conventions that are focused much more on books. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I usually end up doing a panel on, you know, so you think you want to write for Hollywood at one of them, but, you know, the majority of the focus, it may end up that we end up with some boutiques, um, rather the way that uh, bookstores are, are going. I mean, I'm, you know, we've watched the death of the big chain bookstores and uh, Barnes and Noble, you know, is in trouble. Um, yeah. but unique bookstores, boutique bookstores, the fantasy, the children's bookstore, the, those kind of things, a mystery bookstore will probably survive. And it may be that that's where our science fiction conventions end up. Um, you know, the difference between having 1,400 people or 2,000 people versus 80,000 people at a big, at a big convention. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I just hope that if we can have more 
authors at comic conventions to say, all of this that you see grew a lot of it out of a genre that started first with prose. Right. Uh, and we're all part of the same family. You know, we're back to that diversity, you know, oneness, idic, you know, in the Star Trek thing. So, um, but but I do worry. I mean, you know, there are certain science fiction dimensions that I, I love Boscombe, for example, in, in Boston in February, which is always, you know, lovely weather. <laughs> right. um, but it's one of my favorite conventions, you know, because I get to see East Coast Friends and it's got great programming. But I also love going to Emerald City or Kansas City Comic Con or, you know, um, San Diego makes me crazy a little bit because it's just so many people. And I'm a very small person. So I feel like, you know, the world is made of belt buckles when I'm on the floor at that point. In the past, there have been some controversies, let's say, uh, some argument back and forth about who should even be allowed to attend some of these conventions. Uh, that, gate, that kind of gatekeeping, litmus testing seems to be counterproductive to me. Is that, have you noticed any of that kind of behavior or is that an outlier? And does that present a problem when you shouldn't be allowed to attend because fill in the blanks, politics, identity, age, whatever? I have not experienced that and the conventions I've attended, I haven't seen it. <clears throat> I mean, obviously if there is someone, <clears throat> if a person is doing something that is threatening um, in a, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I know. <laughs> There's going to be blowback. Um, I mean, obviously someone who is sexually harassing um, of either gender, um, sure or is being abusive, then that seems to me to be just cause for saying that behavior is not acceptable. Right. But we come back to there's a reason why, you know, there are many flavors of ice cream. I mean, you have to be open to hearing the other side or an, uh, an opposing opinion or a different opinion. Um, if we lose, if we silo ourselves and we lose the ability to talk outside of that silo, I, I really do despair. Um, I, I just don't think that's, um, that's going to make for a healthy society or a healthy convention. Sure. Uh, which is why, again, I, I rarely block people. Um, you have to really work at it to get me to block you. Um, the major one is if you if you attack, if you are offensive to my followers, to my fans, um, I will block you. Right. But if you come and have a respectful conversation and you come armed with facts, um, then you are welcome to present a different opinion. And I think we have to keep that ability there. Our our we're all going to end up living in pods, you know, and only listening to the same people and well, talking to the same people. And, and the concern about echo chambers and everything, that, that's, a big, that's a big thing these days. I mean, with the cancel cult being the way it is, you can't do this because you're not the right type of person. You can't write this story because you're not in this category. The identity politics that go back and forth. And Robert in the chat asks, asks a, a, what I think is a pretty good question. With, with regard to science fiction and fantasy, 
the word diversity comes up a lot. We hear it in, in comic books and literary circles and whatnot. And that seems to be the big thing now. But is it uh, necessarily a good idea for that to be the thing all the time? Because it really does feel like sometimes whenever anybody's talking about diversity, it's not necessarily diversity of ideological uh, thought or diversity of ideas or diversity of, of personalities or anything like that. It always kind of comes down to skin color and plumbing. Is that necessarily a good thing? Are we focusing on diversity too much just for the sake of diversity itself sometimes? No. <laughs> um, no. Uh, and, and, and just a aside, cancel culture flows both directions. This isn't just a you know, the left. True. Um, there's also cancel culture on the right. Um, pendulum swing and right. And it is, there has been so many generations and centuries of people who were othered and silenced that um, if we, some may view it as overcompensating. I don't think so. I think it's time that we, um, embrace that this will all again you know the golden mean as the greeks used to say um this will settle but right now it's important that we acknowledge the things that have occurred um and that we give voice to people who for a long long time have been voiceless right um and so you know, I think that's part of that uh, Star Trek uh, humanity issue of, you know, how can we do better? And, you know, if, if it really isn't, I mean, it comes down to writing. Sure. Just because in some ways, um, the pie doesn't get smaller. I mean, just because there are more people coming into play doesn't mean your slice of the pie is getting smaller. It means the pie is getting Bigger. Right. The whole so, r rising tide lifts all boats type of thing. Yeah. yeah. It, it actually does work that way. And so hearing these new voices and new ideas, I think is just healthy for all of us, whether it's in politics or art or um, economics, wherever it is, these new ideas, these new thoughts. And, and um, I mean, our writing room on, on Wild Cards, uh, when we were developing the show for Hulu, which sadly they didn't move forward with, but we had a fabulous writer's room. And it was, the diversity in the room was extraordinary. And the life experiences that everybody brought um, made it a much richer, much more satisfying experience and also the work that came out of it mm -hmm. the scripts that we wrote were deeper and more profound because we have these different voices um so you know everybody just take a breath <laughs> you know, it'll be okay well and and uh, it it strikes me though however when when we were talking about the you know who's the gatekeeping and stuff you yourself even said i have to be careful because i'm going to get blowback on this so you're obviously aware that there is there are people out there who are going to take whatever you say, and yes. that can be whatever you say, and they're going to choose to be offended by it. And it seems to me that there are people who are sitting there going, well, you're not, because we saw this in, in the YA books. You know, you can't write about this because you're not of that particular group. 
uh, that seems to me a little bit detrimental to the creative process where, you know, if I want to, you know, and I was talking about this with Lee yesterday, if you have a, if you have a good enough imagination and you do enough work in the research and the world building and make sure that you have the authenticity, like you're talking about authenticity, anybody should be able to write about anything. Maybe. Yes. I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I the, the one thing they always say, write what you know. And I'm like, well, I've never been on a spaceship and I don't know any aliens. So right. that's a dumb remark. I mean, that's the dumbest writing advice you can give. No, I, I think when I said I'm going to, what I wanted to say was I had to think about this because, yes, I may get blowback and people may react to what I said. Um, if they choose to be offended, I have not tried to be offensive. My, sure. my thing is... At, Try to make your point with courtesy and with understanding. Um, and if you do that, then, you know, generally I actually get very little flack. Um, and I think it's because I, I do think about it. I, if I write a tweet, I read it several times and I, I breathe a bunch of times before I send it. Mm. You know, I mean, just <laughs> never react too quickly. And I wanted to make certain that I was respectful to the questioner who said, are we going overboard on the diversity? Right. My feeling is we're not. He may feel, he, I think it was he, mm. may feel differently. But I wanted to say, I hear you. And and again, if if some people choose to be offended then there's nothing I can do about it. But I do try to actually be moderate in how I respond and to, um, and to be respectful and courteous. Um, I think that's all any of us can do. If we just sort of, I mean, I, I keep coming back to Thumper's mother in Bambi, <laughs> um, which, you know, I, I sometimes feel like if we all sort of had Thumper's mom in the back of our heads going, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, we would all be a whole lot better off. You know? We probably would be, but then social media would go bankrupt. I mean, what would what would you do with with Facebook and Twitter if you if you lived by that that maxim? Uh, okay, so so dates on what comes out next for you. When when should we look for these titles to hit shelves? Um, I think that um, uh, the next White Fang Law book, uh, which is called Box Office Poison and is set in Hollywood and has a whole bunch of my experiences in it, um, that will be out probably in the next month. And then the fourth Imperials book will be out in February is our target date of next year. Um, so uh, that's that. Those are the two that are coming out. I think it will probably be early early spring before the before the Carolingi and the Edge books start coming back out again. Because um, <laughs> I'm going to rewrite book one, the opening of it, because when I wrote the screenplay based on it, I came up with a much better opening for the book, <laughs> and I like my script better than I like my book. So now I have the opportunity to change it, and so the book is going to match my screenplay now. Um, so I have to get on that. That's actually the work I'm going to be starting later this afternoon after I get back from riding the horses. So. And after you return your professor's phone call. <laughs> yeah, well, he may have to wait till after I ride the horses. <laughs> All right. Uh, the website for any of you that want to find out more about Melinda's works, melindasnodgrass.com. And we do have a link to that in the show notes. Melinda, thank you very much for being here today. It was very, thank very nice you. having you. 
it was lovely. Uh, Great conversation. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. And uh, just wanted uh, to to give this note. You can find us on all of the social media. We'll be we'll be making announcements next week. We'll be on a sort of truncated holiday schedule. So be watching our social media. We'll be posting. But don't forget H2O Monday night episode 250. Uh, We're hitting a milestone there. And I will leave you with this thought. It's only rock and roll, but I like it. Back Monday. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.